0: Welcome to Catching Curveballs. Join Dr. Moji, a psychology professor at the University in Ohio, and her daughter, Yabade, a research scientist in California, on a journey of how to make the most of what life throws your way.
1: We hope to make today's podcast as informative and lighthearted as possible. So sit back and join us on this adventure. If you have your own comments or questions, remember to send them to catchingcurveballs at gmail.com or DM us at catchingcurveballspodcast on Instagram. Both are always listed in the show notes in case you want to double check the spelling. In fact, make it easier on yourself and just go ahead and add that email to your contacts list and follow us on Instagram. And if you like what you hear, remember to rate, review, and tell your friends, family, and coworkers to listen. The good news is that this will never be one of those podcasts where you're embarrassed to share it or even admit that you listen to it. All right, Mom, here we are, another day, another episode. How's life? How are you today?
0: Hello, my daughter. Life is going well, and I'm doing fine. As a member of the American Psychological Association, APA, since 1998, I'm privileged to receive regular email messages that are a synopsis of six things psychologists are talking about. Today, I'd like to share some of those that interest me and hopefully will interest you and our listeners. Psychologists are currently talking about post-election stress. Do you know that the outcome of the recent U.S. presidential election offers little stress relief? According to new survey, only 17% of American adults say their level of stress has decreased since Election Day, while more than a quarter say their stress has increased. 81% of Americans point to the future of America as a significant source of stress, compared with 66% who said the same in January 2017. Psychologists are also talking about biased beliefs. More specifically, what do we know about conspiracy theories? Psychological research on cognition, personality, and conspiratorial narratives helps explain why conspiracy theories such as QAnon take hold, what makes them appealing, and how they might be stopped. By the way... QAnon is a far-right conspiracy theory alleging that a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles is running a global child sex trafficking ring and plotting against U.S. President Donald Trump. Research also shows that people turn to conspiratorial narratives to satisfy their need for certainty and security which might be particularly relevant in 2020, a year of uncertainty. Likewise, psychologists are talking about treatment during the pandemic. Psychologists are reporting large increase in demand for anxiety and depression treatment. A recent APA study found that nearly 30% of psychologists said they are seeing more patients overall since the start of the pandemic. Of psychologists who provide treatment for anxiety disorders, nearly three quarters reported an increase in demand for such treatment. 60% of those providing treatment for depressive disorders saw an increase too. The vast majority, that is 96%, of psychologists reported treating at least some patients remotely.
1: I love that. What a great way to start the episode! We get the inside scoop as to what's been on the minds of psychologists lately. Hopefully you can share some more of those in the future. For now, though, it's pretty alarming to hear the statistics around post-election stress. Usually I would ask a few more questions just because I never received a poll. I have no idea if they've polled the same people they did in 2017. However, I have to say that just based on what a lot of even my friends, what others are sharing in terms of how they're feeling, I definitely get the sense that those statistics are likely spot on. Maybe it's because I'm getting older and just a lot more aware as to what's transpiring around me. But when you say that 81% of Americans are concerned or stressed over the future of the country compared with 66% in 2017, I'm not at all surprised. And then also, too, I loved hearing the update around bias beliefs and why some people are inclined to really strongly gravitate towards conspiracy theories and hearing that a lot of that revolves around the need for certainty and security. And then, of course, treatment during the pandemic. I think if there's anything we could emphasize even more on this podcast, it's the pride in those individuals that really recognize that they need help and they're making sure that they take action, especially during this time. Okay, moving on. For today, we have the second episode of our self series. Last time we explored self-reinvention and today we're discussing an extremely important concept, self-worth. Dear listeners, for today, I'm embracing the role of cheerleader for all of you. In doing so, I'm starting this discussion off by reminding each and every one of you that you, your opinions, your ideas have value. Every single one of us has shortcomings and imperfections, it's part of what it means to be human, and we're bound to have moments where we fixate on them far too much or even let our insecurities get the best of us and display unhealthy behaviors. The goal for today is to better understand the psychology behind self-worth or that opinion of yourself. Honestly assess where you fall and learn strategies to help get you to a healthy self-esteem level. I'll be rooting for you the entire way because this is such a fundamental component to your well-being and arguably your entire existence. All right, mom, what does self-worth mean? The
0: dictionary definition of self-worth, as defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is a feeling that you are a good person who deserves to be treated with respect. The term self-worth is also used interchangeably with self-value, self-esteem, self-confidence, or self-regard. Regardless of the exact word used, ultimately, it means that you value yourself. Some people actually argue that these words don't actually carry the same meaning. For those who distinguish between self-worth and self-value, they maintain that a sense of self-worth means that you value yourself and having a sense of self-value means that you are worthy. But that more importantly, self-worth is, quote, a feeling that you are a good person who deserves to be treated with respect, end of quote. While self-value is, Quote, more behavioral than emotional, more about how you act toward what you value, including yourself, than how you feel about yourself compared to others, end of quote. That's not where it ends. Some people consider self-worth as a favorable estimate or opinion of oneself, self-esteem while self-esteem is considered as thinking well of oneself, self-respect. Others differentiate self-confidence and define it as not an overall evaluation of yourself, but a feeling of confidence and competence in more specific areas. For example, you could have a high amount of self-worth but low self-confidence when it comes to extreme sports, certain subjects in school, or your ability to speak a new language.
1: So slightly differing opinions to start. Since I've promised to cheer everyone on today, I'll try to remain neutral and not pick a particular side. But it seems that commonly, self-worth ultimately refers to believing that you are a quote-unquote Good person who deserves the respect of others. With that said, if this is some sort of sports league, most teams consider words such as self worth, self value, self esteem, self confidence as meaning the same thing. However, you have some teams that regard self worth and self value as differing concepts and describe self worth as an emotion, while self value is viewed as more behavioral and reflective of how you act when it comes to the things you find important, including yourself. Then there are other teams who separate self-confidence and define it in a narrower manner. In other words, it's more of your evaluation and feelings about a particular set of skills rather than an overall assessment of your worth. While regardless of the slightly varied meanings, it's safe to say that all are pretty important to our well-being. Mom, can you take it a step further and explain the impact of how we appraise ourselves?
0: Having a sense of self-worth, high self-esteem and self-confidence is a valuable psychological resource for all of us. It is a factor that is positively related to achievement, good relationships and life satisfaction. Having little self-esteem, for instance, is related to negative outcomes such as being depressed, finding oneself in, and staying in abusive relationships and situations. But people must seek a balance. Because too much self-esteem, for instance, has undesirable consequences, such as a negative perception by others that one has a sense of entitlement or one's inability to learn from mistakes. In an extreme case, one might be narcissistic because one is behaving in a self-centered, conceited, and cunning manner.
1: That's a really good point to keep in mind. Self-worth is something we want to cultivate, but it's also something worth calibrating because in excess, it can reach a point that's unhealthy and potentially even destructive for ourselves and our relationships with others. So let's say we're each a cake or cookie or pie that's being baked and self-esteem is the sugar. Obviously, we want to make sure we get the recipe just right so that it's sweet, but not excessively so. What are some of the signs we have the right amount of self-worth added to that cake?
0: Your question is an important one, my daughter. A person with an appropriate dose of self-worth or who is balanced in terms of this attribute will be a person who knows the difference between self-assurance and self-importance. It is someone who is self-accepting and has the ability to set limits, a person able to make their desires and views known. Someone who is not afraid of conflict, of criticism, of failing, or of obstacles. It is important to mention the person is not a perfectionist nor a people pleaser.
1: What about the roots of self-worth? Because those characteristics sound lovely, yet it's not as simple as telling yourself, okay, today I'm going to be self-assured but not entitled. I'm going to accept my flaws yet not let them get me down. I'm not going to be afraid of conflict or of failing or of whatever challenges come my way. All of that sounds well and good, but to actually truly feel that way is a different story and we all differ in our levels of self-esteem both in general and moment-to-moment. So where does the value we place on ourselves originate?
0: In general, many theorists, including classical theorists like Sigmund Freud, Eric Erikson, and Karen Honai, will trace the root of self-worth or self-esteem to people's childhood. A childhood in which the child experiences constant disapproval in the family has adverse ramifications for when the child grows up. A child's negative experience in the school can contribute to low self-esteem in adulthood. And as an adult, experience in an unsupportive workplace or within an unhappy relationship can adversely influence one's self-worth. In general, across the lifespan, psychological studies have shown that self-esteem seems to rise and fall in expected or typical ways. For instance, self-worth increases by varying amounts until about age 60. Thereafter, it seems to remain steady and then begins to decline in old age.
1: So although the roots of self-worth are in childhood, experiencing constant or seemingly continuous disapproval at any age from others, whether it's family members, significant others, peers, teachers, even bosses, can adversely affect your feelings of self-worth.
0: Yes. But all is not lost. Not everyone who experiences a barrage of disapproval ends up having low self-worth. Healthy people are able to survive constant disapproval and other negative feedback.
1: Can you elaborate more on that? Because it's so true that there are some people who seem to continuously be met with rejection or disapproval or unfortunate events, yet somehow they don't appear to have low self-esteem. Granted, maybe they're just projecting that image, but nevertheless, there does seem to be a difference person-to-person in self-esteem, despite what could be contended as similar challenges. If we use siblings as an example, even after growing up in the same household with the same parents. Attending similar or even the same schools, etc, even from an early age, there can be significant differences in self-esteem. So what other factors are at play? Yes, there are
0: various other factors we need to consider in order to better understand self-worth. People's personality traits, such as extraversion, contentiousness, openness, and agreeableness, are positively associated with one's feelings of self-worth, while neuroticism is negatively associated with one's feelings of self-worth. Feelings of self-worth are also linked with the ability to handle difficult life situations. In this regard, one's coping behaviors and coping strategies matter. They boost or knock down one's sense of self-worth. If you use problem-focused coping strategies, you make a plan of action when confronted with a problem. If you use emotion-focused coping strategies, you get emotional support from your community. If you use a coping strategy where you focus on stopping unpleasant emotions and thoughts, you keep yourself from feeling sad. These additional influences and others are the subject of numerous psychological studies psychologists have assessed elements that potentially serve as risk factors for lower self-esteem, as well as the relationship between level of self-worth and other mental health outcomes.
1: And what have the findings of some of those studies been? What else can they tell us?
0: Well, for example, in a 2019 study The researchers assessed risk factors associated with self esteem. This was a study conducted in Lebanon, and their findings showed that depression, anxiety, burnout, stress, low emotional intelligence, suicidal ideation, alcohol dependence, and many other factors can be prevented or reduced by interventions that improve self-esteem.
1: Takeaway being that if you improve self-esteem, you might be able to reduce or even in some cases prevent particular mental health concerns, including anxiety, low emotional intelligence, suicidal ideation, and even burnout. Shout out to our review of Burnout, episode 20. Listeners, if you haven't checked that episode out yet, absolutely do so. All right, Mom, please continue.
0: Another interesting finding is from the late 1990s. In this study, investigators examined the ability of measures of perceived competence, control, and autonomy support to predict self-worth and academic performance with regular education students, learning disabled students, and continuation high school students. Analysis of the data indicated that perceived competence, control, and autonomy support were significant predictors of self-worth and grade point average. More recently, two researchers conducted a systematic review of factors associated with self-esteem following acquired brain injury in adults. They identified, synthesized, and appraised all existing quantitative empirical studies on predictors or correlates of self-esteem following acquired brain injury, ABI. They found that a range of clinical factors were related to self-esteem after ABI, including the degree of physical and functional impairment. According to them, it is unclear if cognitive impairment is related to high or low self-esteem. They, however, found that psychological variables such as coping styles Adjustment and perception of problems or rehabilitation are related to self-esteem following ABI. Depression was also strongly associated with low self-esteem alongside anxiety, psychological distress, and quality of life. They concluded that the findings of their review suggest that self-esteem is an important factor to consider following ABI, particularly in the context of developing individualized formulation-driven rehabilitation interventions that take into account biological, social, and psychological factors.
1: So fascinating. I hadn't considered self-worth from an academic performance perspective, and the results of the study from the 90s makes me think back to my time in high school. For me, despite my many flaws and shortcomings, I definitely think my sense of self-worth is at the point or, well, close to the point I'd ideally like to see it, hence why I'm playing cheerleader today for anyone who doesn't feel the same. But there have been many points in my life where I absolutely had very low self-esteem, and it probably reached its lowest during my high school to early college years. That was a period of fluctuation between low to very low for me. And I know you've already covered so many potential root causes, but for me, I absolutely believe it was mainly because what I saw and heard from peers and friends and what they seemed to value just didn't seem to match me or how I saw myself. At that time, a lot of my classmates didn't look like me, didn't have a life story or background even close to mine, and even the magazines and blogs and people that my classmates and friends would praise and talk about most definitely didn't look anything like me. In fact, polar opposites is how I'd describe it best as. And so as an impressionable teenager, you start to internalize all of this and inevitably that does take a toll on your self-esteem. I'd say it wasn't until I actually started traveling around the world and living in different countries and firsthand seeing how much bigger the world was that it really changed. All of a sudden, I started meeting people who looked and behaved in so many different ways and had all of this ambition and incredibly inspiring goals, and that truly transformed my self-worth. It increased it. Because in them, I actually saw this reflection of myself. I saw someone who actually was unique versus odd. Someone ambitious versus unrealistic. Someone slightly funny, sometimes funny versus dorky. Someone kind of smart versus nerdy. There were just these shifts that started taking place at that time, and I can't imagine what I'd be like if I'd never traveled and had these life experiences. It actually scares me to think about because even if at home you have really well meaning parents, quite frankly, especially during your teen years, you really care a lot about what your friends think and how they view you. It's just the reality of adolescence. You want to find your place, you want to fit in, and your ability to do so has an impact on the value you place on yourself. Granted, there are definitely exceptions, but that applies for the majority and it applied for me too. So mom, for those who are still on that path, or even for someone like me who still has those moments in which your self-esteem dips a bit lower than you'd like, what are some strategies we can use? Going back to that cake or cookie or pie analogy, how can we increase the sweetness if we've run out of sugar at home? Actually, let me get rid of this analogy. Mom, how can we increase our feelings of self-worth?
0: You know what, my daughter, I find your analogy useful. Back to your question. According to Dr. Neil Botton in his Psychology Today article, there are many ways we can improve our self-worth or self-esteem. Make two lists, one of your strengths and one of your achievements. Think positively about yourself. Pay special attention to your personal hygiene. Take a shower, brush your hair, trim your nails, and so on. Wear clean clothes that make you feel good about yourself. Eat good food as part of a healthy, balanced diet. Exercise regularly. Ensure that you are getting enough sleep. Reduce your stress levels. Make your living space clean, comfortable, and attractive. Do more of the things that you enjoy. Get artistic. Set yourself a challenge that you can realistically complete. Do some of the things that you have been putting off, such as filing the paperwork, repainting the kitchen or clearing out the garden. Be nice to people and do nice things for them. Get others on board. Spend more time with those you hold near and dear. Avoid people and places that treat you badly or make you feel bad about yourself.
1: Okay, Dr. Burton took it a different direction than I did. My advice was to travel and experience more of the world, but apparently that wasn't good enough for the list. That's okay because I still have time to redeem myself. I'm recruiting the psychologist Dr. Guy Wench to do so, and he has a few TED Talks that I highly recommend. I believe his earliest TED Talk was Why We All Need to Practice Emotional First Aid, and in it, he discusses the importance of our protecting our self-esteem, the need for working on our emotional hygiene, and prioritizing our psychological health. During this talk, he said something that really stood out, which was, quote, Our minds and our feelings, they're not the trustworthy friends we thought they were. They're more like a really moody friend who can be totally supportive one minute and really unpleasant the next, end quote. That statement reinforces how critical it is for us to take how we evaluate our worth and value very seriously. Even if we don't believe we have low self-esteem, there's still the possibility we'll have moments where that esteem heads down south. So with that, Dr. Winch has five solutions that he later published in a TED article. The first is to use positive affirmations correctly. Correctly in this context refers to the importance of using affirmations that are actually realistic and believable. If your self-esteem isn't very high, it could actually be pretty disparaging to rely on extremely optimistic affirmations. The example Dr. Winch uses is that instead of saying, I'm going to be a great success, instead, remind yourself that I'm going to persevere until I succeed. Second. Identify your competencies and develop them. From personal experience, this is absolutely key. If there's something you have pride in or already place a lot of value on, work on it. Continue to improve in that area or even make improvements in areas that you find more natural or that you have a lot of interest in. Third, learn to accept compliments. Seriously, coming from someone who tends to be self-deprecating, just say thank you. Train yourself to accept the compliment rather than instinctively rejecting it or minimizing it. If thank you isn't a comfortable response, then adjust it to, quote, how kind of you to say, end quote. Fourth, get rid of self-criticism and replace it with self-compassion. Channel your dearest friend or someone who, when they come to you with a problem or are harsh on themselves, you'd insist they take it easier on themselves. Do that for yourself. Find that compassion and direct it inward. When you start hearing that inner critic or experience those moments of doubt, embrace that role of compassionate listener. Fifth, affirm your real worth. Write it down. Take a moment and write the qualities that mean a lot to you and go beyond that to even write about it in detail. Write a few paragraphs explaining why this quality or characteristic is so meaningful to you and repeat this exercise as often as needed. You deserve to feel worthy and have every right to prioritize fostering a healthy self-esteem. It might take some work, but as that delicious cake takes some effort to put together, in the end, it'll be worth it. Okay, mom, I think we're ready for your quote for today.
0: All right, my daughter. My quote for today is by Mandy Hale.
1: Self-worth
0: is so vital to your happiness. If you don't feel good about you, it's hard to feel good about anything else. Well, that is all for now. Thank you for spending time with us.
1: Yes, we want to hear from you. Give us feedback on what you heard today and suggestions for topics you would like us to discuss in future episodes. You can email us at catchingcurveballs at gmail.com. That's curveballs at gmail.com, all one word. Or you can follow us on Instagram at podcast. That's podcast. And if you like what you've heard, don't forget to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it.
0: We cannot wait to connect with you soon.